Good morning. Good morning. Uh, for the rest of us, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Psalms chapter 73, Psalm 73. It's been a good morning. Psalm 73. One of the lines in the song that we just sung um, said, all this pain. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, all the pain that uh, we go through at times, um, all the hurts, all the struggles, all your fears that have been dashed, um, or your hopes that have been dashed, the losses. Maybe you're going through times of a violent storm and just uh, don't know how to hold fast, how to hold an anchor. Maybe there's chaos in your life and you're looking for peace. Maybe there's confusion and you're looking for clarity. Maybe there's disappointment and discouragement and there's an answer for you. This psalm is for you. As you're going through this struggle in your life, I hope you're going to find answers today in this psalm, Psalm 73. Would you read with me when it says here, it says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault to them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Verse, verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart cleaned and washed my hands in innocence. Have you ever been there? gotten to a place in your Christianity, gotten to a place in your, in your spiritual life where it's like this is just in vain, it's not worth it any longer. Jump down with me to verse 26. It says, my flesh and my heart fail. Have you ever been there? Where it's like your body and even the very center of who you are, your heart fails and you're so disappointed. This morning, I hope you're going to find hope in this message that we're going to find I entitled the message, I don't get it, because I tell you, I go through life at times, and I just don't get it. I don't get why it is that it seems like those that do wrong seem to prosper, and those that do right, it seems like they have a difficult life. I don't get it. I don't know why it is that sometimes maybe the good people that are around live shorter lives, and other people run their lives right down on the ground, and they live decade after decade after decade. I, I wonder why it is that some people have the pleasures and the prosperity and the power and the prestige that I would think that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should have, and they don't, and I get discouraged. 
at times. I get disillusioned. I don't know if you are like me, but I do at times. Well, there's this guy, Asaph. He is the writer of this letter. He's the writer of this psalm. And Asaph was a spiritual leader in the church. He was actually, in all likelihood, a temple worship leader. Asaph was a Levitical priest. He was appointed by David. He was responsible for the worship, the choir, that they would sing. This psalm was actually one of the songs that they would sing in that church. He was responsible for composing music and setting the text to the service. He was a spiritually mature man. He knew God. He loved God. He was in service to the king. However, Asaph was deeply disappointed, deeply discouraged. Martin Lloyd-Jones has this quote. I really like it. It says that although the ancient psalmist of Israel were holy men of God who wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were deeply human. And they were not above honestly describing the struggles and the temptations as well as the truths they discovered and the hopes that they clung to in order to find victory in the grip of a sovereign and merciful God. Sometimes I think that if we believe that if we're people of faith, that we never struggle. That's a lie. Sometimes we believe that if you're in ministry and that you're a pastor and elder, that you never have doubts. That's a lie as well. The reality is, is that we need to be remarkably honest in our lives, that we all struggle, and that we look around at things that are happening around us, maybe things that are happening in your own home, or things that are happening in your life, or things that are happening in society, and you question at times. It's okay to question. It's okay to have some of those fears. It's okay to have some of those, just doesn't make sense to me. Well, because I am not God, and I cannot see all things. I'm not all-knowing. I'm not ever-present. God can see things that I can't possibly see. So having some of those questions is not a problem. Asaph is going to tell us, though, that he had some of those questions, and his questions spiraled further than he should have. Because Asaph went to a place of disappointment. He went to a place of discouragement. He went to a place of discontentment. I don't know if you've ever been there. Asaph lived a godly life. It says that he cleansed his heart. If you look in verse 13, it says, All in vain have I kept my heart cleaned. I've washed my hands in innocence. He, he was doing the righteous things. He was avoiding sin. He was meditating on the word. He was in a habit of prayer. He was confessing sin. He was trying to keep himself from being stained by this world. However, he was in great troubles. Is that you? The troubles that he had was maybe sickness maybe relationships, maybe his career. I have no idea. But what we know is this. The troubles that he was going through was very grievous. It was very hurtful. It was very discouraging to him. It was distressing to him. And then what Asaph did was what you and I are tempted to do. He looked at his life, and then he started to compare his life with others. He looked at people that were around him, and he said, wait a minute. I'm going through all of these struggles, and the people of God are going through all these struggles, but why is it that the ungodly seem to be walking around in their pride and their arrogance and their presumption and their pleasure-seeking and their deceitfulness and their blasphemy. God, how are you allowing this to happen? Asaph couldn't understand. It just didn't make sense. He could not reconcile a God who is loving and gracious, a God who he, as he started with, is good. He couldn't reconcile why God was allowing the struggles that were happening around. Are you ever tempted to think that? 
Well, Asaph knew that he was in the midst of a violent storm, and the things that were happening around him were impacting him. The things that were happening within, within him was impacting him, and he needed an anchor. He needed a, a principle, unbending principle in his life. He needed a non-negotiable belief that he could hold on to in the midst of the violent storm. And what was that, um, that principle? What was that unbending principle? God is what? Good. God's good. That even as I'm looking at all the things that are happening around me, I need to hold on to this non-negotiable belief that God is good, and that becomes the perspective by which I live my life. Well, now as Asaph was going through, he knew God was good intellectually, but as he was looking at everything around to comparing himself, he was doubting himself, and he was doubting that principle. So today I want you to consider that Asaph is like you and me. I don't know what it is that you think that you need in order to be happy, but there's probably something. There is something that you think that you are lacking in this life that is going to fulfill you, is going to satisfy you, is going to give you the hope and the freedom. I don't know what you think it is. Maybe it's money in the bank. Maybe it's a vacation. Maybe it's a home. Maybe it's a new spouse. Maybe it's a new child. I don't know. Maybe it's a new job. Can't be a new church. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but there is something in your life that you think you desperately need in order to be happy. And it leads to this level of envy. Look here. He says this, verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. He was almost stumbling out of the faith. My steps had nearly slipped. And then he says, I was envious of the arrogant. What does envy mean? Jealousy. Envy comes to this word, this, this idea of coveting and envy. Coveting is desiring something that you don't have, something that you think you look out there in the world and say that I desperately need this thing, right? That's coveting. It's the tenth of the, the last of the commandments, the last of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. Well, coveting is that I desire something I don't have, but envy takes it even further. Envy is looking at what somebody else has, their attainments, their talents, their abilities, and saying, I want that, I need that, and that I deserve it, and you don't. I want to grab it from you. So Asaph, the ministry leader, was not only coveting things that were out there in the world and believing he needed that to be happy, but he was envying those that had it and believing that they didn't deserve it. Have you ever been there? Oh, come on now. As you, as you drive down your neighborhood and you look and it's like, wow, they got that brand new car. Or they have that house. I can't believe it. Or they went on that vacation. I can't believe he makes that amount of money. And you start to, oh, well, look at their happy family. Look at that marriage. Why can't I have a husband like that? You, you, you've been there. And if you're not telling me the truth, well, you're not lying. Envy tells me that I have something out there in the world that's missing. It's going to make me happy. Well, that was what Asaph was struggling with. Well, Asaph believed that he was in control. He believed that his plan was right, and he was questioning the power and sovereignty of God. He believed that there was something out there in the world that somebody else had that he deserved that would make him happy. He believed that he was righteous and that they were ungodly, and he was missing it. Because Asaph was making the same mistake that you and I make. We compare ourselves horizontally. We fail to compare ourselves vertically. 
And we look for a satisfaction horizontally here in this world, in relationships or in the possessions of this world, and we don't look for a satisfaction and fulfillment vertically in God. Have you ever found it in your life where you are desiring something deeply? You know, if I could only make another zero on my bank account, or if I can only have this possession, I'll be happy, and you grab it, and now it becomes the item in your house that you don't even use any longer. Because you've gone from that possession, I've grabbed it, I've gotten it, now I'm happy, and then you move on, I need something else. And I need something else. And Asaph was missing the fact that all the things that he was crying for, all the things he was going after were going to fail him. Well, Asaph was on this downward spiral. He was even at a place in his life where he was questioning whether Christianity was worth it any longer. But Asaph took some steps out. And what I want to do this morning is to focus on the steps out of this spiral, the steps out of this disillusionment, the steps out of this despair. Because he is teaching us about his spiral. He is teaching us how we can get out of it ourselves. Look with me here in verse 15. Back up to 14. He says this, All the day long I have been stricken and rebuked Every morning. Mornings sometimes are like the hardest thing for people. They walk, wake up and they wake up out of this despair and they wake up and it's like, you know what, I don't even want to go to this day. The alarm clock goes off. They keep hitting the alarm clock. Well, Asaph didn't just say that I woke up with this despair. I was stricken all day long with this envy. But then he said this in verse 15, because this is the first step out of his despair. If I had said... I will speak in this way. He ceased. He stopped. The only one that could stop your spiral is you. As a counselor, as a pastor, can't stop you from the choices that you make. I tell my kids, stop it. Even there, they have to personally choose to stop themselves. Asaph had to get to a place where he was looking and comparing himself and finding himself questioning and disillusioned, and he had to come to a place where he ceased. Stop. I like the word cease. The word cease, you know, we, we use it in the military, and in the military, they tell you to cease fire, right? Stop. You don't pull another trigger. You don't take another step. You Stop. And the only one that could do that, I can give you an order to stop. God can give you an order to stop. But the one that is going to stop this spiral is you. And Asaph got to a place where he said, I have to just stop this. I can't go any further. I need to cease this. I need to move towards peace. I need to stop. I need to finish. I need to conclude. I need to terminate it. He stopped his emotional spiral because of what? He started to think about the people he could be impacting. Look, he says this in verse 15. If I had said this, I had speak thus, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. I know that when I get into my um, struggles, at times, my mouth can go. And sometimes I will say things that I can't even imagine. It's like, where did that come from? And it's like sometimes I just got to bite my tongue because if I don't shut up, I'm going to be impacting other people. I'm going to be hurting other people. 
And Asaph realized that he needed to cease this spiral because he was going to be influencing other people. He started to look around at the people he could be impacting. I don't know you as a father or as a mom, you as a child, the things that you say, friends at school, the things that you say out of your mouth. And sometimes you're just saying these things and all of a sudden you're just ripping people apart and you're hurting them. Oftentimes that is driven out of our emotions. And Asaph clearly was struggling with his emotions. Now, emotions are wonderful gifts from God. God gives us these emotions. They're organically based responses, but they're triggered by what you think or believe. Emotions are fueled by what you think or believe. Emotions are like an energy source as well. So the emotions that Asaph was having were being triggered by his thoughts. They were being triggered by his beliefs, and they were an energy source. But you ever notice that emotions are also contagious? That as I am struggling with sadness, and if I am crying, guess what? It's going to tend to happen. You're going to feel compelled to cry. If you're with an angry person, what's going to happen? You'll be compelled to get angry. The emotions, unless you're very strong in it, the emotions can impact other people. Well, Asaph knew that. He knew that he had to cease. He knew he had to come to an end of this spiral because he was going to impact other people. That was step number one. Step number two, he said this in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went where? Into the sanctuary of God. So step number one is that he had to cease the spiral, but step number two is that he had to get back into community. He had to come to church. He came into this worship service with other believers, and he was there in that community that he started to think about other people in his life, and he started to think about God. See, it's at this place. It's not the building itself. I hope we get a beautiful building down the road, but it's not the building itself as much. It is about the people of God and communing with God and communing with other people. That's what, that's what Asaph needed. He needed to cease the spiral, but then he needed to get back into fellowship. He needed to get back into unity and closeness and relationship. That community was not just going to a building. It was coming into a place where he met with God. He went to the house of God. And when he went into the house of God, what did he hear? He started to see other people, and he started to hear the very word of God. And as he started to hear the very word of God, what happened to him? His thinking started to change. Because you remember, the emotions are being triggered by what you're thinking or believing. But as you're sitting here, and as you're singing the songs, and as you're hearing the word preached, and as you're hearing the prayer request, what you're hearing is something different that's going to change your perspective, change your life. It's in that community that he hears the word of God. It's in that community where he started to pray with others. It's in that community where he started to love other people. Now, love is interesting, because when the Bible talks about love, it talks about this idea of priority. We define love mostly about feelings, and we make decisions based on the up and down emotions that we have, but that's not the way the Bible defines love. The way the Bible defines love is primarily about priority and focus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's about what you make the priority of your life. Where Asaph was struggling was this, that he was making the priority of his life all the things that he didn't have and that he desperately thought he needed. You and I do the same. 
Asaph had to come to a place where he started to prioritize other people. He needed to think about others and how he was impacting them. He needed to consider God's people and then meet with God's people. And that as he's loving God and loving others, that was going to change the impact of his life radically. When you come to the uh, chapel, when you come to this building, when you come to meet with these people, you're also coming to hopefully worship God. What does worship do? Worship reorients the way your mind and your heart is. It places you in a place of humility. John Newton had this interesting quote. He said this, I am persuaded that love and humility are the highest attainments in the school of Christ, the brightest evidence that he indeed is our master, that when we are coming to a community of faith, we're coming here because we're loving one another and loving God, and it creates this humility within our hearts and our lives, and it opens us up to true worship. You need community. I need community. We need community because in that community, what God does for you is he, he assures you that you're his own. In that community, what he does is also he helps you to help other people. He empowers you to help other people and give your gifts out to help the body. In that community, what he does also is that he uses other people's gifts and abilities to minister to you. And that's what Asaph needed right now at that time. That those other people that were there in the community, they were there to help him. It's in that community that you put yourself under an eldership and a leadership that are shepherding you and keeping you. It's in that community that you are protected, that when you find yourself slipping away, that somebody is there to grab your hand and that God is going to use that person to hold you fast. That community is so important. So Asaph, step number one, came to a place where he ceased the spiral. Step number two is that he got back into community, but step number three, he got some clarity. He says here that when I, until I went, verse 16, until I went into the sanctuary of God, I discerned their end. Whose end? Who's he talking about here? He started to get some clarity. He started to get understanding, enlightenment. He started to recognize that, as, I, as God said in Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. That Asaph thought he was seeing the world clearly, and he thought he was seeing his need clearly, and he was missing it. He was seeing the world falsely, and he was seeing his need falsely, and he was missing it. And what God was doing as he came into that community of believers, as he sat under the word, he started to see what he really desperately needed. He started to think clearly and rightly. His feelings were starting to change because his thinking was starting to change. He started to understand who he believes in and what he believes and why he believes it. And as those beliefs were starting to change, his emotions were starting to change, and everything started to rea um, react differently. He started to see God differently. Roy Clement says it this way. He says that worship puts God at the center of your vision it's vitally important because only when God is at the center of your vision that you will see things as they really are. Well, Asaph wasn't seeing things as they really were. He was seeing it falsely until he went into the sanctuary. God was giving him understanding of who he was. God was giving him understanding of who Asaph was and why he's here and where he's going and what is true and what is right and that Christ was enough. He was giving him a new perspective. But he was also giving him a perspective not only about who Asaph was and why he's here, he was giving him a perspective of the people he was envying. And he says, 
I discerned their end. He started to discern what is it that the ungodly really get? That if they live their lives today and forsake God and they have all the power, maybe all the pleasures, all the prestige that you desperately want, if they take their last breath today, they're going to an eternity in hell. That some of us are living our lives for everything here on this earth. And at best, we get 60, 70, 80, 90 years on this earth, 100 years on this earth, but there's an eternity that awaits us. And what Asaph was missing was this. He was looking at the temporal pleasures of this world, and he was missing their end. That The greatest problem that humanity has is not the pleasures of this world. The greatest problem that humanity has is that if they don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that there's an eternity that awaits them where they will stand under his judgment for all of eternity. And as Asaph started to get a concept of their end, he also got a concept of his own end. I've got heaven that awaits me. I've got pleasures. I've got prestige. I've got honor. I've got glory. I've got majesty that awaits me. But God, I've got you that awaits me in heaven. And for every single person that ever trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can leave the bonds of this earth and spend eternity with God. And so now Asaph's vision changed. Instead of desiring the things here of this earth, he started to recognize that the greatest problem was he was missing it. The surplus that he had, he was missing the fact that he, was, he thought that he was living his life at a deficit. He believed that there was something he desperately needed in order to be happy. He missed the fact that he had more than he ever deserved. At one moment, God can call somebody into judgment. At one moment, the power of God is exercised. In one moment, justice is there. But at one moment, God continues to be faithful to us in the midst of our struggles. So Asaph recognized that he needed to cease the spiral. Asaph realized that he needed to get into community of believers. Asaph realized that he needed to get some clarity so he could start to think differently. And then Asaph realized, i got to confess. What in the world have I done? What in the world have I thought? What in the world have I said? What was I tempted to say? How could I have acted towards you, my precious Lord, the way I have? Asaph said this. He says, verse 21, When my soul was embittered and I was pricked in heart, I was a brute and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. You ever find yourself angry with God? Most of us don't want to admit it. You ever find yourself disappointed with God? Once again, most of us don't want to admit it. But the reality is, is that a lot of us struggle with this at times. Because we believe that there's a better plan, a better way, and that God, you're doing something wrong. We may not be as bold to say that out of our mouths, but that is at times the struggles that we have in our hearts. Well, that's where Asaph was. He said, I was embittered. I was mad at you, God. I was confused by what you were doing. It just didn't seem to make sense. And I treated you like a beast, an animal. What does an animal do? Does an animal think long-term? No. An animal thinks the immediate, right now. Change this, give me food. Fix my situation now. They don't think the long term. They don't think about saving. 
Well, Asaph found himself. I've been miserable to you, to God. There's times where we just don't glory in God. His holiness is not reverenced. His greatness is not admired. His power is not praised. His truth is not sought. His wisdom is not esteemed. His beauty is not treasured. His goodness is not savored. His faithfulness is not trusted. His promises are not relied upon. His commandments are not obeyed. His justice not respected. His wrath is not feared. His grace is not cherished. His presence is not prized. The person of God is not loved. I don't know. Some of us in this room have never confessed sin, ever. I sit in a counseling office at times, and I have couples that have never sought forgiveness from one another. It doesn't make sense to me. I sin every day. <laughs> Some of us have never owned the fact that we are sinners. Never asked for forgiveness. We keep silent. We blame somebody else. We conceal it. Proverbs tells us this. It says this, Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses it and forsakes it finds mercy. Some of you have never trusted in Christ because you've never asked God to forgive you for what you've done. It's pretty easy. Well, actually, it's not because it costs you your pride. And Asaph had to come to a place where his pride was broken and he humbled himself and he turned to God and he sought his forgiveness. Some of you have never asked for forgiveness, not only from God, but you've never asked for forgiveness from one another. You've never taken responsibility. You've never owned it. You've never um, uh, stopped blaming. You've never admitted that you're wrong. You've never sought forgiveness from your spouse. You've never sought forgiveness from your child. You've never sought forgiveness from your parent. You've never sought forgiveness from a friend or a neighbor or maybe even somebody in this church. And I don't know how that can be. See, without seeking forgiveness, there can't be true reconciliation in a relationship. And Asaph realized that he was tempted to hurt others horizontally, but the greatest problem he had was vertical. He needed to seek God's forgiveness. Are you there? Step number one, he concealed his sin. Step number two, he needed to get into community. Step number three, he got clarity. When he started to get clarity, he started to know his need to confess. And the last step I want you to consider is this. He renewed his confidence in God. He renewed his confidence in God. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God, you're the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph came to a place where he recognized this, that I need to have a reestablished confidence. I need to cease, stop the spiral. I need to get into community. I need to get some level of clarity in my life. When I get that clarity, I will confess. But he needed to realize that God is the satisfaction to his life. That it's God who was going to ultimately fulfill him. It was God that was going to ultimately satisfy him. It was God that was going to ultimately please him. I like a couple of principles as we... I try to close this up. 
He said that, nevertheless, I am continually with you. The first principle that I see in his renewed confidence was this, that he had to get to a place where he realized that God was never going to leave him. He said this, that I am continually with you because you hold me by your right hand. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you are tempted to spiral right now because of disillusionment or despair, I want you to realize this, that even as you feel like you're slipping, like Asaph said, you're not going to fall ultimately because God won't allow you to. He has you by his right hand. And the confidence that you can have is this, that as you're going through your times of disillusionment and despair, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's got you. He's not going to let you go. And what I find interesting here in verse 23 is this. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. And he says, you hold me by my right hand. Is the focus of attention Asaph's power or God's power? Clearly, I believe it's God's power. That God is the one that's holding him fast. Hebrews says this, let us then approach with confidence the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of trouble. The confidence that we need to have in God is this, that you can trust him that your faith can be restored, that he can remind yourself of God's goodness and God's power and God's love and God's faithfulness to you. And if you remind yourself of that as you start to think differently, then your emotions change and you see the world in a radically different way. Instead of loving this world, you start to love the people that are here and desiring that those people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That confidence is there. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. There's a second principle I want you to hear. Not only are we securely held by the very hand of God, but the second principle is this. We're guided by his counsel. It says in verse 24, I can have confidence in God because he's given me his counsel. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you receive me into glory. What does it mean to be counseled by God? He directs you. He guides you. He shapes you. He puts you on the right track. He points you in the way. He gives you the course. He gives you the route. He gives you the path by which you follow. When you can follow his path, now what happens is that you have a reestablished trust in who God is and a reestablished trust in where you are. Lloyd Ogilvy said this, Right now the Holy Spirit is offering to be your personal counselor, to help you with all your problems, with all your relationships, with all your decisions, whatever robs you of your joy and peace. So as I go and follow his counsel, the Holy Spirit promises to be there to help me. Because if I don't, I live this life, it's going to be a mockery. It's going to be a sham. Third principle I want you to consider before we end. Our confidence as God is found in this, that we will be received into glory. Verse 24. It says, not only will you guide me with your counsel, but then afterwards you will receive me into glory. What does it mean, afterwards? See, Asaph was looking for his happiness to be found right now. But Christianity is about this now and the not yet. That as we live in this world now, there's going to be pain at times and struggles and sorrows and grief. But the not yet that awaits you is this, hope and peace and freedom and joy, and glory, and honor. And Asaph was believing that he could be fulfilled by what was happening here. He was missing about the not yet. 
And he realized that as he started to read to establish his confidence in God, that God, you're holding me by my right hand. You're guiding me with your counsel and you're taking me home to glory. And he looked and he says, you know, if I get heaven, but you're not there, what good is it? And if I look at earth, what good is it? There's nothing here. Last principle I want you to consider is this. He says that God is the strength of my heart verse 26 and he says that he's my portion forever i really do love that because the strength of my heart he is my rock he's my foundation he's the anchor for my soul in the midst of a violent storm he's my strength when i feel weak when you're going through your struggles of weakness right now god can be your strength god can empower you and change you but not only is he your strength he is your portion forever that idea of portion is this, that Christ alone, God alone, is the thing that's going to satisfy you. That Asaph spent the first part of this psalm looking at all the pleasures and the power and the prestige that everybody else in this world was having, and he was thinking that he needed that in order to be happy, and he came to the end in the concluding thing, that my satisfaction is only found in one person, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my satisfaction. He's my fulfillment. He's my desire. He's my prized one. He's the one that needs to be cherished. So let's go back to verse 1 for a moment. Verse 1 says this, truly God is what? Good. I want you to consider this in closing. Is God just good in his character? He is. Is God good in what he does? He is. But I don't think that's what Asaph's getting at. It's not simply that God is good and that God does good. God is the good. He is the only good that is going to satisfy you. Because I can tell you, you buy a house and then you look and it starts breaking down. You buy a car and it starts breaking down. The kids leave. You lose a job. The bank account goes down. Your health falters at times. The things that you think you desperately need in order to be happy today will not fulfill you, but one person can. Christ. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. So if you're in the midst of a spiral right now, I guess I ask you this. The first person that needs to stop you is you. You need to cease. Cease the spiral. You need to get to a place where you start to think of other people, not just think of yourself. And then the second thing is what you've done this morning is you need to get into a community. This community of believers can help you and guide you and strengthen you. And then once you get into community, hopefully you get into a, uh, a study and then we'll, you'll hear God's word and he'll give you clarity. Clarity about who he is and clarity about who you are and clarity about how you can have a life of contentment and satisfaction and peace. And then when you get to that clarity, then there's going to be times of confession where you're going to recognize that you failed and you turn to God. And then hopefully it's going to be there where you're going to reestablish your confidence in God. So I have a question for you. Was Asaph, or God's love for Asaph, based on Asaph's ability, his performance? No. Was Asaph's, 
or God's acceptance of Asaph based on what Asaph did. No. So many of us live our lives today thinking that we need to earn God's favor. I need to do the right thing. And so that when you're going through a despair or uh, disillusionment, you wonder that you wonder if God is even happy with you, if God is pleased with you. And if you're there, you're missing the beauty of the gospel. See, the beauty of the gospel is this, that I don't live a perfect hour of my life, but Christ lived a perfectly righteous life for me. That there was never a moment in his life where he sinned, and there's never a moment in my life where I am not tempted to sin. And that God's acceptance of you and me is based on what? Based on one person, Christ. That he was the one that was the fulfillment. He is the one that is the satisfaction. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of Christ. So this morning, if you have never trusted in Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you believe that the answer to your hope and healing is found here on this earth, I pray today that your eyes will be open and you'll recognize it doesn't satisfy it. It will leave you hungry. It will leave you lonely. It will leave you enslaved. I hope you come to a place where you recognize that there is one who truly satisfies Christ. And all he calls you to do today is to believe that he is the true satisfaction, to confess your sins and to turn to him, and you become his own. For the vast majority of us that sit here, guess what? You've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, but now you're having some doubts. Go back to the sanctuary. Get back into community. Get back in hearing his word so that you can get some clarity. When you see the sin that's there, humble yourself and confess and reestablish your confidence that God is God. He is the good. Lord, I thank you and we praise you.